Welcome to the Eric Erickson Show podcast, Hour One. Hello, America. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here across the nation, and it is a huge, huge day in the legal system of the United States. The phone number, if you want to be on the program today, 877-973-7425. It is safe to say that today is an extremely historic day. The United States Supreme Court today in a 6-3 decision uh, called Students for Fair Admissions, Inc. versus President and Fellows of Harvard College has eliminated affirmative action as part of a college admissions process for both public and private institutions. It is a huge decision. Justice Chief Justice John Roberts wrote the decision. Now, you must recall that the Chief Justice of the United States several years ago in a case authored um, or uh, about affirmative action that did not go the full distance to getting rid of it, Chief Justice Roberts said, and I quote, the way to get rid of discrimination is to stop discriminating. And today he gets his way. It is a remarkable case, and... I rarely have paper, but I, I've printed out the decisions. I, I There are several actually big decisions today, and uh, this one is remarkable. First, the interests they view as compelling cannot be subjected to meaningful judicial review. Harvard identifies the following educational benefits that it is pursuing, quote, training future leaders in the public and private sectors, preparing graduates to adapt to an increasingly pluralistic society, better educating its students through diversity, and producing new knowledge stemming from diverse outlooks. The University of North Carolina points to similar benefits, namely promoting the robust exchange of ideas, broadening and refining understanding, fostering innovation and problem solving, preparing engaged and productive citizens and leaders, and enhancing appreciation, respect, and empathy cross racial understandings and breaking down stereotypes. Although these are commendable goals, they are not sufficiently coherent for purposes of strict scrutiny. At the outset, it is unclear how courts are supposed to measure any of these goals. How is a court to know whether leaders have been adequately trained, whether the exchange of ideas is robust, or whether new knowledge is being developed? Even if these goals could somehow be measured, moreover, how is a court to know when they have been reached and when the perilous remedy of racial preference may cease? There is no particular point at which there exists sufficient innovation and problem-solving or students who are appropriately engaged and productive. Finally, the question in this context is not one of no diversity or of some, it is a question of degree. How many fewer leaders Harvard would create without racial preferences or how much poorer the education at Harvard would be are inquiries no court could resolve. Comparing respondents' asserted goals to interests we have recognized as compelling further illustrates their elusive nature. In the context of racial violence in a prison, for example, courts can ask whether temporary racial segregation of inmates will prevent harm to those in prison. When it comes to workplace discrimination, courts can ask whether a race-based benefit makes members of the discriminated class whole for the injuries they suffer. And in school segregation cases, courts can determine whether any race-based remedial action produces a distribution of students comparable 
to what it would have been in the absence of such constitutional violations. Nothing like that is possible when it comes to evaluating the interest respondents assert here. Unlike discerning whether a prisoner can be injured or whether an employee should receive back pay, the question whether a particular mix of minority students produces engaged and productive citizens sufficiently enhances appreciation, respect, and empathy, or effectively trains future leaders is standardless. The interests the respondents seek, though plainly worthy, are incapable, inescapably imponderable. Well, it goes downhill from there. The race-based admissions systems that respondents employ fail to comply with the twin commands of the Equal Protection Clause, that race may never be used as a negative, and that it may not operate as a stereotype. It's just, I mean, the the decision of the chief here is remarkable. If you text DATA to 33777 and get my show notes, you'll see a link to the chart included in the chief justice's opinion. On page 31 of the decision, the results of the Harvard admissions process reflect this numerical commitment. For the admitted classes of 2009 to 2018, black students represent a tight band of 10 to 11.7% of the admitted pool. The same theme holds true for other minority groups. UNC's admissions program operates similarly. The university frames the challenge it faces as the admission and enrollment of underrepresented minorities. The problem with these approaches is well established. Outright racial balancing is patently unconstitutional according to this court. That is so we have repeatedly explained because at the heart of the Constitution's guarantee of equal protection lies the simple command that the government must treat citizens as individuals, not as simply components of a racial, religious, sexual, or national class. By promising to terminate their use of race only when some rough percentage of various racial groups is admitted, respondents turn that principle on its head. Their admissions programs effectively assert that race will always be relevant and that the ultimate goal of eliminating race as a criteria will never be achieved. In fact, you can see from this that if you're in the 40th percentile of students and black, you are more likely to get into Harvard and University of North Carolina than if you were in the top percentile in Asian. What people forget about this case, and this is the most important part here, if you are upset with the United States Supreme Court's decision on affirmative action today, you are okay with Harvard University and the University of North Carolina actively and willfully discriminating against a race of people because that is the fact that was proven in court. Harvard and the University of North Carolina actively, willfully, and intentionally discriminated against Asian students and denied them admission in favor of other non-white minorities. They chose a minority to punish and they chose a minority to elevate, they actively racially discriminated in violation of the Constitution, and that is the proven and undisputed and admitted fact of the case. And the Supreme Court says that is unacceptable. It is remarkable. Some of the language used In fact, there's a fantastic line 
from the Supreme Court majority written by John Roberts, the principal dissent written by Sonia Sotomayor, wretches our case law from its context going to links to ignore the parts of that law it does not like. The serious reservations that Bakke, Gruder, and Fisher had about racial preferences go unrecognized. The unambiguous requirements of the Equal Protection Clause, the most rigid, searching scrutiny it entails, go without note. And the repeated demands that race-based admission programs must end go overlooked, contorted, worse still, into a demand that such programs never stop. Most troubling of all is what the dissent must make these omissions to defend. A judiciary that picks winners and losers based on the color of their skin. While the dissent would certainly not permit university programs that discriminated against black and Latino applicants, it is perfectly willing to let the programs here continue that discriminate in favor of black and Latino applicants against Asian applicants. In their view, this court is supposed to tell state actors when they have picked the right races to benefit. Separate but equal is inherently unconstitutional, said Brown versus Board of Education. It depends, says the dissent. That's Chief Justice John Roberts writing his. But more substantially is the opinion of Justice Clarence Thomas. His is not, I shouldn't say the opinion, it's a concurrence. And I want to read for you some of what Clarence Thomas says. Clarence Thomas takes on Justice Sotomayor and Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson. Katanji Brown-Jackson played no part in the decision because she had ruled uh, in a lower court case on this matter, so she was conflicted out. So it was really a 6-2 to decision, not a 6-3 to decision. However, Justice Thomas takes her on because she does write a dissent nonetheless. In the wake of the Civil War, the country focused its attention on restoring the Union and establishing the legal status of newly freed slaves. The Constitution was amended to abolish slavery and proclaim that all persons born in the United States are citizens entitled to the privileges or immunities of citizenship and the equal protection of the laws. Because of that second founding, our Constitution is colorblind and neither knows nor tolerates classes among citizens. This court's commitment to that equality principle has ebbed and flowed over time. After forsaking the principle for decades, offering a judicial imprimatur to segregation and ushering in Jim Crow era, the court finally corrected course in Brown versus Board of Education, announcing that primary schools must either desegregate with all deliberate speed or close their doors. It then pulled back in Grutter versus Bollinger, permitting universities to discriminate based on race in their admissions process, though only temporarily, in order to achieve alleged educational benefits of diversity. Yet the Constitution continues to embody a simple truth. Two discriminatory wrongs cannot make a right. He goes on then to indict the worldview of Katanji Jackson, or Katanji Brown Jackson. He writes, Justice Jackson has a different view. Rather than focusing on individuals as individuals, her dissent focuses on the historical subjugation of black Americans, invoking statistical racial gaps to argue in favor of defining and characterizing, categorizing individuals by their race. 
As she sees things, we are all inexorably trapped in a fundamentally racist society. With the original sin of slavery and the historical subjugation of black Americans still determining our lives today. The panacea she counsels is to unquestionably accede to the view of elite experts and reallocate society's riches by racial means as necessary to level the playing field, all as judged by racial metrics. I strongly disagree. First, as stated above, any statistical gaps between the average wealth of black and white Americans is constitutionally irrelevant. I, of course, agree that our society is not and has never been colorblind. People discriminate against one another for a whole host of reasons. But under the 14th Amendment, the law must disregard all racial discrimination. Yet Justice Jackson would replace the second founder's vision with an organizing principle based on race. In fact, on her view, almost all of life's outcomes may be unhesitantly ascribed to race. This is so, she writes, because of statistical disparities among different racial groups. Even if some whites have a lower household net worth than some blacks, what matters to Justice Jackson is that the average white household has more wealth than the average black household. This lore is not and has never been true. Even in the segregated South where I grew up, individuals were not the sum of their skin color. Then, as now, not all disparities are based on race. Not all people are racist, and not all differences between individuals are ascribable to race. Simply put, the fate of abstract categories of wealth statistics is not the same as the fate of a given set of flesh and blood human beings, according to Thomas Sowell. Worse still, Justice Jackson uses her broad observations about statistical relationships between race and select measures of health, wealth, and well-being to label all blacks as victims. Her desire to do so is unfathomable to me. I cannot deny the great accomplishments of black Americans, including those who succeeded despite long odds. Nor do Justice Jackson's statistics regarding the correlation between levels of health, wealth, and well-being between selected racial groups prove anything. Of course, none of these statistics are capable of drawing a direct causal link between race rather than socioeconomic status or any other factor in individual outcomes. So Justice Jackson supplies the link herself, the legacy of slavery and the nature of inherited wealth. This, she claims, locks blacks into a seemingly perpetual inferior caste. Such a view is irrational. It is an insult to individual achievement and cancerous to young minds seeking to push through barriers rather than consign themselves to permanent victimhood. If an applicant has less financial means because of generational inheritance or otherwise, then surely a university may take that into account. If an applicant has medical struggles or a family member with medical concerns, a university may consider that too. What it cannot do is use the applicant's skin color as a heuristic, assuming that because the applicant checks the box for black, he therefore confirms, conforms to the university's monolithic and reductionist view of an abstract average black person. Accordingly, Justice Jackson's race-infused worldview falls flat at every step. Individuals are the sum of their unique experiences, challenges, and accomplishments. What matters is not the barriers they face, but how they choose to confront them. And their race is not to blame for everything good or bad that happens in their lives. A contrary myopic worldview based on individual skin color to the total exclusion of their personal choices is nothing short of racial determination. That's Clarence Thomas. Amen and amen. Today, the United States Supreme Court eliminated affirmative action from college admissions processes.
Vision Computer has over 3,000 five-star Google reviews and an average phone answer time of just 15 seconds. When you call, you won't be stuck navigating endless automated menus. A live person's going to answer the phone and help you solve your problems. You know, I run a business, and it's one reason I love the idea that Vision Computer exists. Because as a business owner, you know you've got to be efficient, you got to have tech support issues resolved quickly, and you got to have your computers work. Don't let your employees suffer in silence either. They may be embarrassed or hesitant to ask for help, but with Vision Support, they can get assistance they need to work more efficiently. Reach out to them. Call 404-COMPUTE or go to visioncomputers.com. In fact, if you call them at 404-COMPUTE, ask for the Eric Erickson special when you call. They're not going to have it on their website. It's just for you guys listening. Call 404 Computer Day. Ask for the Eric Erickson special. Be amazed at Vision Computer. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson here. Don't forget, text data to 33777 and you can sign up, get the show notes. I've got all the stuff on the Supreme Court. I, I got to make a couple of points here that some people really aren't going to like. Justice Katanji Brown Jackson was explicitly placed on the court because of her race and gender, and she seems very sensitive to that. I mean, this is Joe Biden himself said he was only going to put a black woman on the Supreme Court. Hers was an affirmative action pick, and you can't deny it because Joe Biden said as much. What I find remarkable is that her racism in her dissent is more akin to something you'd get in the Tawny court than any other court. It is explicitly racist. She explicitly subscribes to a worldview that black people are inferior and says as much. It is remarkable that she was that explicit and it's shameful and she's been repudiated by the majority. Now, I don't want to repudiate, well, what's going on with the stock market right now, which is pretty good, but, you know, it's it's topsy-turvy, and you probably need to consider uh, using precious metals if that's your thing uh, as, part of the, as part of your portfolio or your retirement portfolio, your 401k, your IRA. Even your general portfolio might benefit, might benefit from gold and silver. If you're interested at all, I want to recommend to you Advantage Gold, 800-450-2566 is their number. They are TrustLink's number one highest-rated gold company seven years in a row. Uh, you can call them, uh, ask them for their free gold IRA investment kit. Uh, they will gladly send it to you and help you comply. The IRS does have rules on using precious metals as part of a retirement portfolio. Call them at 800-450-2566. Tell them I sent you. And get their free gold IRA investment kit and just talk to them. They will educate you about using uh, gold and silver is part of your portfolio. They give you great rates as well. they got a great team, 800-450-2566. Have you ever wished you could become an even more effective conservative advocate? Like, uh, who could you rely on to give you the knowledge and information you need to make more persuasive arguments, how to knock on doors, how to show up at your local city council, or to meet your state legislator to advocate for small government? Americans for Prosperity can help you. They train you to be a better conservative activist, to grow the movement and fight for small government around the country from the local level to the federal level. And they put points on the board. Over 200 legislative victories in the past year alone advocating for smaller government and reduced regulation. Americans for Prosperity wants you on their team 
You can join them at americansforprosperity.org slash Eric, americansforprosperity.org slash E-R-I-C-K. They've got over 30 chapters around the country in states. They're growing new ones all the time. Be a part of a movement for small government with americansforprosperity.org slash Eric. Go check them out today. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number is 877-973-7425. If you're just tuning in, it's a very historic day. The United States Supreme Court has struck down affirmative action in college admissions practices for public institutions and for private institutions that take federal money. Uh, so an institution that is completely private and takes no federal dollars can still discriminate. But if they take any federal dollars at all, they cannot. That's the situation with Harvard, University of North Carolina, of course, publicly funded. I have read the decisions and the concurrences and dissents. In fact, I was supposed to have a meeting at 11 o'clock and I had to cancel it and say, I'm still waiting through this decision. What I find really interesting is the Chief Justice, John Roberts, writes the decision. Clarence Thomas, Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, they file concurrences. Sonia Sotomayor and Katanji Brown-Jackson uh, file dissents. And it's almost like you can read the Chief Justice and Clarence Thomas bouncing off of each other. The Chief more restrained, uh, allowing Clarence Thomas as a black man to have his say, but occasionally you'll see something that Clarence Thomas writes in his opinion, and you're like, I, I, that could have actually been in the majority opinion. And then you see something that uh, the Chief Justice writes, like, oh, Clarence Thomas could have put that in, and he didn't. It's like they they, they bounced ideas off of each other almost in their uh, opinion and concurrence. I want to read you again a particular line here and, and then the next paragraph, because not only does... Clarence Thomas dragged Katanji Brown-Jackson for her, it is an explicitly racist worldview that Katanji Brown-Jackson espouses in her dissent uh, that black people are inherently inferior in this country because of slavery uh, and they can never be anything other than victims in this country, which Clarence Thomas uh, rejects. But let me just read you this from Chief Justice. Part of it I read earlier, but you got to get the whole context here with the next paragraph. Most troubling of all is what the dissent must make of the omissions to defend. A judiciary that picks winners and losers based on the color of their skin. While the dissent would certainly not permit university programs that discriminate against black and Latino applicants, it is perfectly willing to let the programs here continue that explicitly discriminate against Asian applicants. In its view, this court is supposed to tell state actors when they have picked the right races to benefit. Separate but equal is inherently unequal, said Brown versus Board of Education. It depends, says the dissent. This is a remarkable view of the judicial role, remarkably wrong. Lost in the false pretense of judicial humility that the dissent espouses, is a claim to power so radical, so destructive, that it required a second founding to undo. Justice Harland knew better, quotes Justice Jackson. Indeed he did, quote, in view of the Constitution, in the eye of the law, there is in this country no superior dominant ruling class of citizen. There is no caste here. Our Constitution is colorblind and neither knows nor tolerates classes among citizens. 
That's Justice Harlan dissenting in Plessy versus Ferguson. Plessy versus Ferguson was the late 1800s case that allowed separate and unequal to exist, overruled by Brown versus Board of Education. This second founding is what Clarence Thomas gets in the beginning of his concurrence. In the wake of the Civil War, the country focused its attention on restoring the Union and establishing the legal status of newly freed slaves. The Constitution was amended to abolish slavery and proclaimed that all persons born in the United States are citizens entitled to the privileges or immunities of citizenship and the equal protection of the laws, citing the 13th and 14th Amendment. Because of that second founding, our Constitution is colorblind and neither knows nor tolerates classes among citizens. Again, quoting Justice Harlan in his Plessy versus Ferguson dissent. Now, I've got to read for you the end of Clarence Thomas's concurrence because it's one of the most powerful things issued today by the Supreme Court, and in a concurring opinion, I get. But he writes three paragraphs at the end after going after Harvard the explicit refutation of a meritocratic-based system by the progressives, he writes this. The words of Clarence Thomas today in his concurrence in the decision striking down affirmative action, this is how he ends his concurrence. The great failure of this country was slavery and its progeny. And the tragic failure of this court was its misinterpretation of the Reconstruction Amendments, as Justice Harlan predicted in Plessy versus Ferguson. We should not repeat this mistake merely because we think, as our predecessors thought, that the present arrangements are superior to the Constitution. The Court's opinion rightly makes clear that Grutter is, for all intents and purposes, overruled and it sees the university's admissions policies for what they are, rudderless, race-based preferences designed to ensure a particular racial mix in their entering classes. Those policies fly in the face of our colorblind constitution and our nation's equality ideal. In short, they are plainly and boldly unconstitutional. See Brown versus Board of Education, noting that the Brown case one year earlier had declared the fundamental principle that racial discrimination in public education is unconstitutional. And then this last paragraph. While I am painfully aware of the social and economic ravages which have befallen my race and all who suffer discrimination, I hold out enduring hope that this country will live up to its principles so clearly enunciated in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States, that all men are created equal, are equal citizens, and must be treated equally before the law. That's Clarence Thomas. Justice Gorsuch writes a concurring opinion. And Justice Gorsuch does something interesting. Justice Gorsuch caused controversy among conservatives uh, by his Bostock decision. 
It was Justice Gorsuch who wrote the Bostic decision, which said that uh, people who identify as trans are supported under equal protection laws and under Title VII. What's so notable here is he calls out the progressives on the court who sided with him on his rationale for the Bostock decision and notes just how uh, inconsistent they are. They're, They're not willing to maintain consistency in the decisions. He writes, the principal dissent, which is written by Justice Sotomayor, contends that this understanding of Title VI is contrary to precedent. But the dissent does not dispute that everything said here about the meaning of Title VI tracks this court's precedent in Bostock, interpreting materially identical language in Title VII. That raises two questions. Do the dissenters think Bostock was wrongly decided? Or do they read the same words in neighboring provisions of the same statute enacted at the same time by the same Congress to mean different things? Apparently, the federal government takes the latter view. The Solicitor General insists that there is ambiguity in the term discrimination in Title VI, but no ambiguity in the term discriminate in Title VII. Respectfully, I do not see it. The words of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 are not like mood rings. They do not change their message from one moment to the next. Rather than engage with the statutory text or our precedents in Bostock, the principal dissent seeks to sow confusion about the facts instead. He seems really shocked that the liberals who joined him in the Bostock case are deeply inconsistent. Shocked, I tell you. Perhaps it's that they view the law as transactional, and they don't actually care so long as they get the outcome they want, which is the problem here. They don't get it, and so they're melting down. Now, keep in mind here, last year, a year ago this week, the Supreme Court issued the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health case. And the left's response was that abortion is overwhelmingly supported by a majority of Americans. Therefore, the court's decision is illegitimate because a majority of Americans want abortion rights at some way, in some kind, in some fashion, at some time, and the court precludes that. Therefore, the court decision is illegitimate. This year, the court has released this case on affirmative action, and the, and the majority of Americans, including a majority of non-white Americans in the United States, say they oppose affirmative action in college admission practices. The very people last year who org- argued that the Dobbs decision was wrong because a majority of Americans support abortion rights this year do not care what a majority of Americans believe. They want affirmative action. And let me be very plain, honest, and clear with you. A majority of Americans, including a majority of non-white Americans, oppose race preferences in college admissions. The only group of people who overwhelmingly support affirmative action are progressive white people of upper income who have advanced degrees from college. The reason that upper-income white secular progressives support affirmative action is because they view it as an indulgence that they have put forward so that they never can be questioned as to why the social policies they have advanced since the 1960s have failed black families in this country. The black family of today is worse off economically, 
materially and in marriage and family than in the 1960s. There are more black men in jail today than then. There are more black families that have single moms than back then. The advancement black families were engaging in in this country at that time was still behind where they are today, and we should acknowledge that. But at the same time, their progress was seen and being engaged in. And after Brown versus Board of Education desegregated the schools, there was this upward momentum. And then liberal social policy decided to separate family and say, you don't need a dad anymore. The government will take care of you. We will subsidize you. And we began to see a deterioration in black families in this country. And you are accused of racism if you point that out. Remember, they always tell you, you're not allowed to talk about this stuff. You're a racist if you talk about this stuff. The reason they say that is the same reason they support affirmative action. The left, the progressive secular white left, does not want to bear any consequence or be held accountable for the failures of their policies to advance black people in this country. Instead, they've concocted all of these schemes from affirmative action and race-based preferences and now reparations to avoid having to deal with the fact that the social policies they put in place to help black families actually harmed those very families and regressed society along the way. And so that's why white progressives support affirmative action. It makes them feel good and allows them to avoid having to account for their failures. They can say, why are you blaming me? I supported affirmative action. It's the right that's to blame. The right's policies didn't win out in the debate to advance families by supporting families. The left's policies won out to advance families by putting them on the government dime. And that destroyed a whole lot of families, particularly in non-white communities. And when you pointed out you're accused of racism so that they don't actually have to answer for what they did, instead they can blame everyone else and scream and bellyache, which is exactly what they're doing today as affirmative action dies at the United States Supreme Court. I would suggest progressives go out and buy a bunch of Eden Pure Thunderstorms and clean the air. Start over again, reboot, acknowledge your your past, and if you can't, well, get the sulfurous smell of your awful policies out of your house. I don't know that the Eden Pure Thunderstorm will eliminate the sulfurous smell of noxious policies, but it certainly will eliminate the smell of, of dirty hippie smell if it comes into your house, along with smoke odors, pet odors, litter box odors, cooking odors, musty odors, you name it. Uh, you can get three Eden Pure Thunderstorms for less than $200 at EdenPureDeals.com. All you do is you put in the discount code ERIC, E-R-I-C-K, on the front page of that website. You'll get three of them upstairs, downstairs, for your hippie neighbor, for your RV, for your travel bag like I do. You can hold it in your hand. You can plug it in with a USB cord or you can plug it into the wall and it'll wipe out odors. It also gets rid of the dust, the pollen, the mold, etc. EdenPureDeals.com. The discount code is ERIC to get three of them for less than $200. You're saving $200. You get free shipping. EdenPureDeals.com. Discount code ERIC. Welcome. It's Eric Erickson here across the nation. The phone number 877-973-7425. Should you wish to be on the program, I have put up, if you follow me on Instagram, at E.W. Erickson, I have put up uh, a portion of Clarence Thomas's uh, uh, concurrence. You can read it as he calls out 
Katanji Brown Jackson uh, and in her racist worldview. And just follow me. It's Instagram.com slash EW Erickson. You can see Clarence Thomas's response. Uh, it is it's it's remarkable. It's it's a great, great, great concurrence. I'll put up some clips of John Roberts's opinion as well, and we'll put up some clips of the show too, so you can have them. Um, follow me there, Instagram. It's EW Erickson, EW Erickson, and Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, all of it. If you text Eric to three three seven seven seven, you can get that. I'll also take your phone calls. By the way, today uh, we've got more on the Supreme Court and what they've done today. There's another big decision I want to deal with here when we come back. Uh, if particularly those of you who are, are religious, this benefits you. We'll get to it. The phone number here, 877-973-7425. The phone lines are open. This hour of the show is brought to you by First Liberty Building and Loan. Wherever you are nationwide, they can help your business grow. If you need access to capital, $250,000 or more to buy a building, build a building, expand a franchise, reach out to them. FirstLibertyGA.com. That's FirstLibertyGA.com. Yeah, so this case is getting a huge... Um, a huge coverage today, students for fair admissions versus Harvard. But there was another big case in the United States Supreme Court today, decided 9-0, to zero, written by Sam Alito. And this particular case involves a Christian who takes the Sabbath seriously, who worked for the post office, and when they started delivering Amazon packages on Sundays, decided to make him work, and he was having none of it, and they punished him, and he sued, and it looks like he's going to score a big win. Uh, the, now, the Supreme Court didn't decide on the win, but certainly seems to suggest that he's going to win uh, in the final lines of the opinion, and it was nine to nothing. Now, this means, however, uh, that the Supreme Court also has more big decisions to come, in fact, I'm looking uh, online, and tomorrow will be another decision day. So tomorrow we're going to get the really big case. The affirmative action one is the second biggest case at the Supreme Court. Tomorrow's case, we will get the 303 Creative case. The 303 Creative case is a web designer from Colorado who actively petitioned before having to encounter the problem the Colorado civil rights law says she can't discriminate, and she is a Christian and says, I don't want to build websites for same-sex marriages. I build wedding websites. It's the core of my business. I don't want to use my creative talents for that. Uh, Colorado is going to make me do it. Uh, what Supreme Court shall I do? Well, we'll find out tomorrow what the Supreme Court says. My question is whether they just throw it out and say there's no standing, which I think is likely. But they may issue a decision, uh, and if they do issue the decision— it's going to be a big one, one way or the other. It will be a big one. But when we come back, we got to talk about Groff versus DeJoy.